Welcome to the Brave New Workforce, the podcast that is changing the way the world works. Episode three, the cola challenge. Larry, what do you have against cola? Are you more of a, a lemon lime guy? Maybe some Fanta? You know, yeah, yeah. I used to be a Mountain Dew guy. Um, what yeah, is cola? The, what is happening here? Oh, yes. We, sh- we should talk about that. So that's the cost of living adjustment. And Trip and I are familiar with this because we've moved around a bit within the United States working in tech, where if you are moving into a, an area of the country that's more expensive, you make a little more money. And if you're moving into an area that's a little less expensive, let's say Iowa, you make a little less money. And so it's meant to help you uh, be able to afford housing, food, all the stuff that comes in a higher cost market. Why do you like it so much, Trip? Well, I think it's just, it's a, I don't love making less money. Um, but I think you look at like the trade-offs. I mean, I, like you, Larry, I was in the Bay Area about 10 years ago. I loved my time there. I was working for great companies. There were lots of trade-offs. I was working like a dog. You know, I was spending two hours minimum a day commuting. It was sort of like, do you take 101 or uh what was the other one? Two two seventy or uh, uh, I forget. Eighty five, two eighty. Yeah, exactly. You're gonna take the Guadalupe, or you know, like you're yeah. rolling the dice every time you get on the highway around which traffic is gonna be worse. Uh, and so I'm spending like 10, 12 hours a week sitting in the car, getting to a job where I'm spending ten hours a day, and not making that much money. You know, we made the, we made the choice, my wife and I, that when we had children, somebody was going to stay home and take care of them. And when we left, we were on the fence. The reason, the, the big driver for why we left the Bay Area, we were on the fence about whether we were going to have a third child or not. And that's a life decision. That is a life altering decision. And that shouldn't be based on how much rent you have to pay every month how much is going out the door in taxes. So we, we jokingly said that we left the Bay area as economic refugees because we couldn't make it, even though I was working at Microsoft, we couldn't make it on that salary with just one income. And that's kind of ridiculous. So we, we left for an area that we could afford to live more, more affordably. So, I mean, quality of life is a huge issue and I can come back to my experience cause I, went from Texas to the Bay Area, and then from the Bay Area to a less expensive place in California. I'll talk about why I made that decision. But Anna's actually kind of been looking at this from a kind of a different perspective, being location independent and not being tied down to a specific area and being able to choose where she wants to live. Well, and she, Anna lives like where most people go to for vacation. So <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> she lives where they, where most people go for vacation. So it's not like, it's gotta be insanely expensive to live there. Uh, it can be depends on what your lifestyle is. I mean, if you want to live like an American in a foreign country, then of course it can be just as expensive as California. But I mean, the locals, they have, you know, more family support, that um, I think the average or like the household income that people make is around $800 a month. Um, I do not live under $800 a month, I'll tell you that. So, I mean, that's obviously a different sort of level of status that you want to kind of break down. But um, it's do- obviously doable for a lot, a lot, a lot of people in Costa Rica to live under $800. I think that something interesting has happened recently. And this has been a result of 
the pandemic where a lot of us were working from home and a lot of people in tech were working from home. Um, knowledge workers have kind of an easy transition into being able to work from home and be able to shelter in places they were having us do in California. Something interesting just happened though. Major tech companies like Stripe, Square, Twitter, Facebook, I could go on and on, Shopify, a Canadian company, have said, you know what, folks, don't come back. If you want to keep working remotely, you can work from home forever. So what does that mean? I mean, what do you think it means, Trip? I think it means they finally looked at their real estate bills uh, and their and their their tax bills because I think um, <laughs> when you look at like commercial real estate, most people don't realize that commercial real estate works differently than residential real estate. Uh, you're they're paying two hundred dollars per built out square foot uh, for these new facilities that they're constantly building out. They're paying for all of these on site perks and private bus services for Google and Facebook and some other companies um, in order to just get their employees efficiently uh, to and from the office in Bay Area traffic. And they have the Wi-Fi set up. So hopefully they're working a little bit while they're commuting. I mean, there's there's, there's terrible trade-offs in that and it causes high attrition. There's a lot of turnover at these companies. As much money as they make, as awesome as these cultures sound, people flip quite a bit and they, they, they bounce from company to company and it's very, very expensive. If you're willing to take the risk and diversify and spread, it's like what the internet was invented for. The in internet was invented for mushroom clouds, but it works for remote work. It works for pandemics. It works for a bunch of other things. You distributed workforce. You don't have like a hurricane or an earthquake shut down your entire company because nobody can get to work. So you're kind of making my point for me. So this is, let me get this straight. So, Are we in an argument, Larry? I didn't realize we were arguing yet. <laughs> I think we may, be, we may be in violent agreement or disagreement. It depends on the day of the week. But uh, in this case, I've, I've been looking at the numbers that you had shared a while ago, like how expensive it is to have an employee sitting in a seat on an expensive campus in the Bay Area of California. So what I'm hearing is you hire an employee in California, in the Bay Area, and you pay them more than anyone else in the world. Not only that, on top of it, you're spending $10,000, $20,000 a year for all of the benefits that come with having this massive campus, subsidized food, legal, insurance, office space, facilities. Times, times about five, hey, Larry. It's yeah. like, oh, it's, see, it's that's like, insane. Yeah. You're not only paying the California employee more, you're giving them tremendous financial benefits, very expensive benefits. You take that employee, they relocate to Iowa or Texas or what have you, or they already were living there. And you're telling them, Hey, you're not going to cost me as much because you're not on this campus in California. So I'm not going to spend as much on you. But on top of all that, I'm going to pay you less. And that just sits wrong with me. Well, let's, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Because I think you're exactly right. The work, the nature of the relationship changes when you leave the office, right? When you when you sort of unshackle yourself from that desk and that big open office and the guy that likes to sit across from you and eat his microwave fish for lunch, uh, you know, like it, the, all the things that make an office terrible. But you're going to get. You, it feels like you're going to get this penalty. But are you really getting a penalty? I mean, those on-site when you look at the the Cadillac perks 
where free drinks and massages, I mean, literally chair massages, uh, three meals a day, a private bus service that picks you up at your house and drops you home and, you know, free dry cleaning. This is all stuff that happens in the Bay Area. The cost of a Bay Area employee, they get, they get paid a lot, but it costs at least uh, 100% more to s- sustain them, uh, pay yeah. for all the payroll taxes, everything else. It's like, it's like $500,000 per employee is the total yeah. cost. Yeah, but I mean, that's just one section. I mean, not all companies are giving their employees massages, you know what I mean? Mm. Um, <laughs> so True. I don't think a lot of people can relate to that statement that you just said. I mean, I know we're comparing to the Bay Area because you guys are from there, but what about moving from Iowa to Kansas? I mean, are we are we really talking about a pay cut then? I think if you're if you're looking at it from the standpoint of there are things you're exactly right. There, there, like those are unbelievable perks that only a fraction of a fraction of people ever get to experience. And I will tell you, as great as it sounds, those perks all exist to make you work more. They're not there oh, yeah. necessarily it's, to. It's for yeah. retention purposes because right. the work environment itself is quite stressful, I'd imagine. And so they're giving you all these extras so that you can be content, but distracted content, I guess. Yeah. Let me offer this because I was thinking about this retention issue Um, and companies like Zapier, which have been remote forever, like three years ago. I mean, they're always kind of ahead of the curve on this. They offered their employees $10,000 to leave California. They knew, and I knew, and you knew because you live there. They knew the quality of life was going down. They knew that it was a stressful place to live. It's super expensive. And they said, we want to retain you long-term at Zapier. We want you to be happy. We want your money to go farther. I'll give you 10 grand, leave the state, move away. And so I would suggest that a amazing retention strategy is what if, what if you are paying your employees better than anyone in another market? They're able to live wherever they want. You're giving them the benefits. Maybe it's a cash benefit to say, let's replace some of the stuff you would have if you lived here in California, went to the campus. Why would someone ever leave that company? Spoilers, Larry, you're talking about a future episode, but yes, we're going to talk about perks uh, in a future episode. Uh, But, and because the perks go to the culture and you made the point earlier, Anna, and I think you're absolutely right around the intention of those perks is to retain people longer, but it doesn't work. If you look at the, at the retention numbers at some of these companies, the average tenure is 13, 24 months. If you get 24 months out of a hire before they flip to another job or you haven't promoted them, they're gone. Uh, so it doesn't actually translate. They're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars and there are certain costs that are identical no matter what in terms of the, the ratio. The, the, the same ratio holds uh, wherever you go. Like the cost of replacing an employee is about equivalent to about half of their annual salary, their annual compensation. Uh, life uh, Health insurance for a family is about $20,000 a year, regardless of where in the country you are. So there are things that are, are the same and then there are things that are different. Um, the thing that I want to make a point about is We haven't talked about opportunity costs, Larry or Anna, right? Is that we have, um, 
those employees are getting paid a lot of money where they're spending a minimum two hours a day, 10 hours a week, up to 53 working days a year or more to sit on a bus or to sit in traffic in the car uh, and, and deal with Bay Area hassles. And, the, and in the Bay Area, more than 75%, and this was in February before the pandemic hit, of people in the Bay Area, it didn't matter the age, said that the, ter- the quality of life is terrible and they want to leave. Uh, and so the trade-off is, what if I got, part of your compensation was you get 53 more days back to use however you want a year uh, for just a little bit less money. And we'll give you a bonus for leaving the area. We'll relocate you. We'll give you a cash bonus. We'll do all sorts of other things to incentivize you to go someplace that is closer to your family, more sustainable. You're going to be happier. We're going to keep you longer. I think it, it nets out way ahead for the employee by cutting that pay. So Anna, I mean, you've been working remotely for pretty much all of your career. And your commute is probably two to three minutes, you know, to go sit in front of your your laptop, if it's like my commute now. So, I mean, what have you found that has changed or you've been able to have in your quality of life by not having a commute of two to four hours a day? Well, I mean, before this luxury lifestyle of remote work, I used to go into an office and I hated it so much that I worked very hard to make sure that never would happen again. And I remember doing two, three hours a day uh, in the morning and then another like two hours at night. So it was five hours gone um, of bad traffic. And so, um, yeah, it was terrible. And now it's great. I mean, the amount of time that I save is ridiculous. I can cook my own meals at home. Um, The flexibility is great because if I want to go grab lunch with my friends, I can go do that. And I don't have to worry about... um, having to go right then and there or else like, you know, the world is falling apart. So there's a lot of, I guess, benefits to this remote work. Um, yeah. You've been doing some also like learning languages and some professional development because you oh, yeah. have some time that you can invest in yourself, right? Yeah. So, um, I mean, I live in Costa Rica, so I, I speak decent Spanish. Uh, I don't want to brag too much, but my Spanish is all right. And now I'm also taking some time during the pandemic because I'm not seeing, you know, as many people um, taking about 15 minutes a day learning Mandarin. So one of the things that I kind of wanted to talk about and Trip, I know you've thought about this too. As we're starting to see remote work becoming the norm, instead of like, oh, here and there and in the margins, but massive companies and a massive number of people working remotely for enough time that they're now starting to see the benefits and they're starting to get over the rough spots that we all experienced in the first few weeks. Are we going to see this become essentially a normal way of working on a global basis? And if all of your employees are remote, do you stop subsidizing people to live in specific places? And do we see compensation normalizing even at a global level where if someone's doing this type of work in one part of the country and this type of work in another part of the world, but it's the same work, they're actually getting similar compensation. Do we start to see that? So I think you, you have to look at it like, you know, we want to say that this is going to be the new normal for the entire world, but you know, there are still things like tax laws and tax advantages and incentives. 
I think one of the biggest problems we have in the United States uh, that is, I mean, we have so many problems right now, but one of the bigger ones, sort of the underlying causes is inequity across a number of systems. And one of the most visible places is that is income inequity. And why is that? It's not just because Google isn't off opening an office in some place like Detroit, uh, but it's like all the stuff that goes around where those bigger, those those more, those bigger salaries are. Like Silicon Valley has had a monopoly on technical talent for decades because you had to go to Silicon Valley to work that kind of a job, and that people once they got there wouldn't want to leave because it would. That was a big choice for me when I left, as I, I was wondering, what am I doing to my career? I can never come back because I can never afford to come back. Um, and it used to be that people would say, once you leave the Valley, you can never go back uh, because it's not the same. So I think there's that. It's like when you take that, that, those concentrations of wealth in cities on the coasts and you start spreading that out into communities, you start seeing more money going into those local communities, those local economies. I mean, I look at it in terms of like, I, when I left my remote office, if you're talking about a new normal, when I, when I left my on-site office, um, where we were crammed in, it was like crappy sort of front, I mean, sort of Amazon style door desk furniture. Um, you know, you're having to wear noise canceling headphones to try to block out the person that sounds like a dog eating peanut butter at their desk. Right. Like there's, there's a, there's all of these distractions and these conversations happening. I now have a private office that is about 400 square feet with two floor to ceiling windows. It's also called my garage. Uh, but you know, it's, it's a, it, I get privacy. I get the benefit of uh, not being distracted. I get all of these other things. Plus, when I go out to lunch, I go to the local restaurant, right? I'm not I'm not going to someplace that is the local cantina on campus. A small business person is benefiting from that. So I think there is a, a, a as you diversify that, there's more benefits that get out into society at large. And I think you'll start seeing states and municipalities creating incentives like Vermont has this where they they offer people the opportunity to to move there and pay for it or help pay for it. I'm glad you mentioned that because I mean I think people are struggling a bit with this and they're struggling with the concept of people leaving the cities and moving into the remote communities. But I don't know. I look at this and I see it as a rebalancing of what happened with the Industrial Revolution where people flowed from small communities and the countryside and farms and essentially killed those communities and moved into the cities. And that came with the benefits and the negatives, which is housing was really expensive. The people who did live in the cities could no longer afford to live in the city because everything was becoming, I know that happened in the Bay Area, super expensive. Congestion on the freeways, all this stuff that is just really negative. And so it's almost like we have a prerogative to reverse the damage that's been done, that if it can be done, it should be done, that we should reinvest in these smaller communities. We should allow people from anywhere in the world to work and have opportunity, have economic opportunity. I think it's going to create a huge diversity in tech in particular, more than we've ever had. Because a lot of people just sometimes don't want to move to the Bay Area, don't want to leave their families and everybody they've known their whole lives and be uprooted and shoved into the Bay Area. 
And so there has been, as we know in tech, a lack of diversity. I think this is going to increase it. I think it's going to increase cognitive diversity. We talk about that a lot, where you are having experiences with so many different people that improves the products that you create. I think tech's going to benefit from this hugely. Well, and I think like speaking of equity, right, and, and diversity, like what does real equity and diversity look like? Uh, when Because people that move to the Bay Area, they're self-selecting. Um, you're, you're talking about, and the Bay Area has a monoculture problem where, you know, if you, if you are, if you look a certain way and you go and work for that company, you often have a lot of shared experience with where you went to school, where you work with privately, your skin tone may be different, but your experience, your sense of, uh, how much you earn, there's people that don't want that right? They want to, they, they grew up in a vibrant community, like say Atlanta, which has a thriving black middle class. They don't have to do the code switching. They can have a successful career there. Why wouldn't you want that kind of talent that doesn't want to move or leave Atlanta um, to, to go work in a Bay area, which is still pretty entitled and still pretty privileged. I mean, Anna, how much have you seen, because I know you're settled in Costa Rica now, at least for the time being, but you've been a digital nomad before this and done a lot of travel around the world and you've worked with a large number of companies. I mean, do you see that having people from different parts of the world contribute to your product, contribute to the content that you write, contribute to the way they think about what they're doing? I mean, does it, have you seen that it improves the company and their products and services? Um, it depends on definitely the personality types uh, because obviously the world is comprised of different types of people. Um, but yeah, definitely uh, you see unique perspectives from somebody from a Muslim country versus somebody who is Catholic or somebody from uh, a Latino American country. Um, sometimes they'll will have different perspectives of like, oh, we shouldn't say that because it might rub, rub so and so the wrong way. We shouldn't, uh, or like a so and so audience the wrong way. Um, I think diversity of thought. I mean, there's been several studies that indicate this is always a kind of a good way to go. Not only because you thrive in um, in, in an economy where everybody's so diverse, you also develop better and in, in, and innovative products uh, along with that. Um, even working with people from the Philippines, you have a different sort of cultural perspective that you have to navigate comparing to somebody who's working in, who's uh, Cuban in Miami, for example. Anna, I think that's like dead on because I mean, there's companies out there like Microsoft that are talking about inclusive design and sort of understanding problems that you may not have and trying to solve it from that point of view that's that's a major gap for a lot of I mean I I work in human centered design and research where we try to figure out what problems people are having that we can solve with the technology but time and time and time again tech companies ship solutions to problems nobody really has or they are tech bro problems, right? They are not real problems because they don't have that outside perspective. And I think where Larry's point around, I, I spent some time 
in the part of the world that Larry grew up, uh, I was in South Dakota, they talked about brain drain and these, you know, it's like, how do we turn these towns back into brain zombies where all they want is brains to come back, right? <laughs> like, how do you, how do you draw, how do you pull that, that talent back in where they don't have to make that trade off of who they are and where they come from with the opportunity to work on things that, that really are shaping the culture we live in today mm-hmm. and could be more inclusive and you may have less products and companies fail because they solve the right problem because you have more diverse insights in forming that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's been interesting to watch some of the companies that are struggling right now and some of the companies that are failing right now and who knows what's going to happen. And it has been, you know, the companies that are solving the problems for the 1% because when, you know, the rubber meets the road and you're going through a crisis, like we've been going through, those luxury kind of experiences, they're not super necessary. If you're just trying to figure out how am I going to get groceries to my home? So the companies that are solving real problems for real people, they're doing okay. They're actually thriving. The ones that are giving you electric scooters so you can zip around and go see the beach, they're not doing so well. Yeah. It's just so detached from, I guess, what people really need, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I remember this in, when I was in Silicon Valley for almost 20 years and doing hiring and building teams and recruiting. And we're always thinking, well, who's available locally and who wants to move here? And can we afford Relo was a huge question. Does this offer come with Relo? And sometimes your budget did. If it was a senior enough level, a lot of times it didn't. And so they're like, nope, you get what you get locally. And that's, I guess that's why I'm so excited about this is that I wish this, I wish this had been around 20 years ago for my career, but Hey, better late than never. Uh, the fact that now companies can hire the best employees and the best in every sense of the word and diverse populations from all over the world, because anybody can work from anywhere. I mean, I think it's going to change everything. Well, I think the other thing too, is that corporate America has become extremely uh, they, they've gone from one extreme to another, right? Where in my grandfather and even my, my father's generation, it was like 25 years in a gold watch. You went to work for a company and you grew with the company and you learned the, learned the job as you went and you had a good job and you stuck with it. Uh, and you, you commuted maybe 20 minutes back and forth and that was it. Right. And then, you had this period where people start job hopping, right? And we've created this environment where the expectation is like, man, you've been there two years. That's a while. Uh, you know, at, when I left Amazon at a little bit longer than six years, I was like in the above the 90th percentile for tenure at the company. Now, part of that was the growth, but part of that is that they people churn through there so quickly. Um, when you're all looking for the exact same female, brown or black, Harvard educated ex Googler, right? You've, you've, you, if you, that, if you're valuing diversity, you actually have to invest and take risks and grow people. It's like finding those, those diamonds in the coal mine is it is a crucial skill. And I think that's an important skill when you're looking at building out a workforce, because imagine how much more headcount you could have if you divvied up and reduced the cost of your headcount on a per unit basis. 
So like, but that's just like me talking. Anna, what do you think? Um, I do want to put a caveat there because there's some companies that kind of, they, they understand the importance of diversity and they want to hire more diverse people, but then it's kind of has to fill in, they have to check a box and that's not necessarily mm. the best way to do it. Like for, especially with like female programming, which I saw due to my tech background in the very beginning, it's like, we need to hire female programmers and they'll get whoever female programmer they are. And they end up being completely awful. They, you know, were lazy the entire time in school and they end up giving you or giving like the team a bad rep because then all the great quote unquote male programmers are like, oh, it's like a female who just got it because she's a girl. You know what I mean? So like you have to have like a nice balance where they're actually qualified people who end up being diverse people. You know, technically we all want to hire the most qualified people on for the job, but through our unnatural or unconscious bias, or sorry, natural or unconscious bias, we end up hiring people who look like us because that is uh, a survival mechanism that we've kept in for over, you know, a thousand years. So there, there has to be kind of like a conscious effort towards hiring qualified people who end up being different than you. Versus just trying to fill and check a box because they're ten, they have a, they're female or their gender or their race. You know what I mean? So uh, one of the things that I think is really interesting there is that that term qualified, uh, because how do you know they're qualified? So you you talked about the the startup founder that wanted to um, look at award winning people that had won this award or that award, or they went to this school or that school. And really what you're doing as a business leader is you're outsourcing your judgment to another organization that made a decision based on criteria you have no visibility into. Uh, and this is a bias that I picked up at Amazon is that we hired for athletes. We, we did behavioral interviewing based on the leadership principles to look at like who had evidence in their, in their life experience of having dealt with ambiguity or difficult situations or could show the, the, the flexibility. I mean, one of the SVPs, the last division that I worked at, he was a middle school band teacher before he went back. And now he runs global logistics in retail for all of Amazon. Um, that's that sort of general athlete. And they do it with MBAs too. You, they, we, they hire MBAs into senior roles right out of school at these companies based on nothing more than where they went to school uh, and coming off of an internship, they have no domain expertise whatsoever going into that role. But because they went to the right school, they get that role. Why wouldn't you take somebody who has Mustang their way through and has done it by merit of having done it uh, versus like somebody else's criteria? And I think that's a problem as well. We yeah, don't think develop you're... in the teaching. You're raising an interesting issue, which I know we're going to touch on in another episode, which is what's going to happen to education, especially higher education. And it used to be that degrees open doors and that's starting to change. We've even start, we've seen this change even in kind of our recent tenure in companies that it's like, can you do the work? Do you have a good track record? I really don't care where you went to school. I hired an engineer who didn't even have a degree because he was that good. And so I think everybody's going to have to up their game. I think companies are going to have to up their game because competition is going to be global. If you don't want to treat your employees well and pay them well, someone else is going to step up. So it goes both ways. That engineer in Iowa might get hired by a company in Eastern Europe. 
and companies are going to have to up their game. Employees are going to have to up their game because now you don't have the luxury of sitting in the Bay Area saying, oh, I'm Silicon Valley talent and you have to hire me. And they're like, no, we actually don't because you're working remotely. They're working remotely. You're competing with everyone in the world now. So I think it's going to become an interesting and more level playing field. Yeah, I mean, it comes down to globalization. Um, just from my experience with working with programmers, I mean, the guys in the Ukraine are are monsters when it comes to code and tech. Um, I, you know, they and also they have the work ethic to show. Like, if they have to work twenty four hours to do it, they will. And so the Americans might not necessarily be like, oh, but work life balance. Like the Russians and the Ukrainians don't have that whatsoever. <laughs> And so they will do it without any question. It's like, yes, of course. Yes, of course. We're not going to sleep. That is that is for small, small minded, weak people. You know what I mean? <laughs> so that's another like factor you have to consider, like the cultures that come into play are going to be so much more intense than perhaps a, an American culture or American mindset. Well, I've seen that. Uh, I've seen that in like at play in the teams that I've built as well. So some of the best designers and researchers that I've hired in my career, um, one person had absolutely no prior experience, but the right problem solving mindset. And she was an amazing, turned out to be an amazing researcher because she could talk to people and she was insightful and she was a good listener and would get like the salient insights that we wanted, that we needed to understand. And the, everything else was teachable. Another person was, had been a high school dropout uh, and then got their GED and grew from there, but they had developed these skills and they had a very thoughtful, almost maverick-like problem-solving approach that allowed them to get at a solution faster. Contrast that to many of the people that I have not hired that came from Ivy League backgrounds and had all of the pedigree. Um, I used to famously run this design exercise called the Kobayashi Maru, which is a Star Trek nerdy reference around how do you actually set somebody up? They have to fail constantly in this design exercise. What is their flexibility of thinking? And when you look at what companies say they want, they want growth mindset and they want, uh, they want problem solving, critical thinking skills. And the people that are getting through to those elite schools are the ones that have been the rule followers. They have gone for the extra credit. They have followed the syllabus. And, but they have not gone well outside the lines. And that is, is a better indicator who, who's going to be successful in a problem-solving role like a Silicon Valley tech company that is looking to disrupt, to change the way that we do things. And I think that's going to be the people that kind of survive in this environment. So I think the three of us could probably talk about this all day long, <laughs> yeah. but I'm going to go ahead and kind of wrap us up and say, where do we see this going in five years? I mean, things are really chaotic right now, and there's a lot of guesses about what's going to happen to companies, what's going to happen with remote work, what's going to happen with employees, globalization. Where do you think this is going to be five years from now, Trip? Well, you're asking us to give away our five-year roadmap for episodes because I think there's that many uh, uh, things that are going to change. Um, I think when we look at um, one of the biggest things that's going to change is education and what is the path to career. I think you're going to see far more 
you're going to see a couple of things. One is that you're going to see far more apprentice, uh, apprentice type programs in what would be considered these knowledge worker white collar jobs. I mean, we have two brave new apprentices working for us this summer, right? And they are doing a lot of the work stuff you would never give an apprentice or a, an intern to do. How do you learn by doing? I think there is an aspect of internally, what are the piece, the, the new types of roles that need to pop up to connect the dots between these distributed teams, people that are responsible for the teaching and leading and learning and developing your workforce and those that are responsible for connecting the dots and being the glue within the organization. And then I think you're also going to see a renaissance in local communities that are benefiting from this a fair redistribution of not not the not the money but the knowledge around the country and around the globe. Right. How about you Anna? What do you think? What's 5 years from now look like? 5 year, I'm not sure if I think it's more of a 10-year plan, so I'm just going to say my 10-year plan. But I think what we're going to see in companies is that they're going to be much more open to hiring people outside of the United States or Canada, for example. I mean, a lot of remote positions are are only for U.S. residents or Canadian residents. And I think in 10 years' time, those borders are going to be opened up where we'll see much more diverse cultures and citizens applying to these big, big uh, tech firms without having to worry so much about getting that green card or the work visa to, to the United States. Um, f- within those five years, I think we're going to see states within the United States uh, open up where they will be hiring people from Florida or wherever. But then I think that extra step, taking that extra step further to hire multiple citizens for that diversity piece, is probably a more 10-year plan. So, I mean, I guess if I had to think about where I think we're going to end up, I think it's going to be probably not as extreme as some people fear and some people hope. Because there's been a lot of heated discussions about this online, as you can imagine. Imagine that. Uh, Heated discussions on Twitter about this, where some people think that this means I'm going to be working alone in my garage next to trip for the rest of my life. There's nothing wrong with the garage. (laughs) And I'll never socialize ever again. Uh, So I think the truth is it's going to be somewhere in between, but it's going to be a lot more flexible. So I think it's going to be a very good thing. I think as Tripp was saying, it's going to pull more of the wealth and opportunity out of the city centers where it's been for a long time now, back into more distributed communities. I think people who want to work remotely that are more introverted, they enjoy it. They're going to work at home a lot. They're going to find places to work. People who want the company of others, it's not like the campuses or buildings are going to disappear entirely. And I think work centers and places where people can co-work are going to spring up all over the country where it's a smaller community of people. And I think people will still be able to work with other people. But I do think this is going to give us a lot more flexibility in our lifestyle I think companies are going to have to realize they can't entirely cut your pay. They're going to have to figure out how to make up for the benefits that you do have on campus. And I think in the end, it's going to be good for the companies. It's going to be good for the people too. So let's, let's take the cola challenge. Uh, and Anna, that's a very old reference. Uh, <laughs> the taste test between Pepsi and Coke. I uh, choose to remain <laughs> arrogant in this. Yeah. Uh, so taking the cola challenge, Larry, if you could, like you were going to get a million dollars, right? And to live where you are, well, you live in a nice place. So you uh, basically, 
you could you can live wherever you want. Uh, you can stay w- w- with what you're doing. You can work on whatever you want, uh, but y- you you have to deal with all the stuff in your life right now. Versus taking a 25% pay cut, moving to a different part of the country, but it feels like a 150% raise uh, because you can you can afford houses, you can afford nice schools for your kids, all that kind of stuff. Like that's I think what the cola challenge is really about is like what's going to make what what is optimizing for happier is a total part of your life as opposed to being at a job that will never love you back yeah i think that's a great way to put it i think it is it is a trade-off of quality of life maybe a little less money maybe you learn from us and the remaining podcast episodes that we have in mind and spin up that side hustle and make that money back uh and start to earn even more freedom but I think it is, you are choosing quality life at the end of the day. So that is this week's episode of Brave New Workforce. This is Trip O'Dell with my co-hosts, uh, Larry Cornett and Anna Kudina. Uh, keep putting one foot in front of the other. Better days are ahead.